Father in heaven, thank you so much for um, this moment. Thank you so much that uh, we can come before you. And uh, we would not want to open your word without first opening our hearts. Lord, as we open our hearts, I pray that you will indeed speak to us as we have just sung together and that your word may come alive this evening. May it not return to you void, but accomplish that in which you please. For I ask this in your precious name. Amen. All right, well, take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to the book of Romans right there in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you get the book of Acts. And right after the book of Acts, we have the book of Romans. And turn to Romans uh, chapter 12. We're going to be in chapter 2 and 3, but I want to first go to a verse in chapter 12 as we set the stage for our presentation this evening. Romans, the 12th chapter, and take a look at verse 2. Romans 12 and verse 2. And when you're there, you can say, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Everyone there? Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this what? To this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we have the words written for us here, and these words tell us that we are not to be conformed to this world. The Greek word for conformed, and you don't have to remember this, this is a difficult one, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, I'm not a theologian, I'm just a lay preacher, but it says sysshematsio, and I don't, I don't, you don't have to remember that, but this is what it means, and this is important. It means to conform oneself to a pattern. To conform oneself to a what? To a pattern. So when it says in uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, it says that we are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Now, this world has a lot of patterns. Um, and uh, in our presentation yesterday, as we looked at a teaching from Romans chapter 1, we discovered that there is a fundamental problem with humanity. And that fundamental problem with humanity is that we tend to worship the created thing rather than the creator. The cre we, we tend to, uh, our affections belong more to the things that God created than to God himself, the giver of those things. And we used a couple of illustrations yesterday. We talked about food. We talked about work. We talked about, you know, our physical bodies and how we oftentimes stop at those gifts. You know, we like good food, but we, we, we don't really always thank the giver of, of that. And, so, and we like to, to do work, and, but sometimes the glory of that work goes to us and not to God. And, and even physical exercise is oftentimes abused when you look at competitive sports and things like that. So the gift is taken out of its frame in which God has given it, and what happens to that gift? That gift is perverted. Now, this is a fundamental problem that humanity um, um, has, it, it is experiencing, and it is uh, displayed there in the first chapter of the book of Romans. Now, as we turn to Romans chapter 2, and you can turn there with me, we're going to continue our study tonight, because what we are going to find out is that this is a problem that is not just a problem to those that do not know God. As a matter of fact, this problem slips in very easily even into those that are professing to follow God. So turn to Romans chapter 2, and I want you to take notice what it says in verse 1. Romans chapter 2 and verse 1. If you're there, let me hear you say amen. amen. Give me permission to read. I don't want to move too fast, but you guys are young. You're fast. 
Maybe not so fast in running, but fast in getting to the place in your Bible. I, I'm not, I won't teach you all week with that. You just have to prove to me that you can really exercise, okay? And I'm sure, I'm sure you will do that. Tomorrow you're going to be ready, right? Okay, Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to what it says. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now, you've got to remember that when the book of Romans was written, Paul didn't write chapter 1 and said, okay, it's enough for today. You know, I've done my homework, and I'll go to bed now, and tomorrow I'll write Romans chapter 2. This was not how the Bible was written. This was not how the letters of Paul were written. As a matter of fact, later on, people that basically com uh, compiled the Bible together and the books together, they gave the chapter divisions in order for us to more easily find passages. So sometimes it's very helpful as you study the Bible to kind of not think too much about those chapter divisions. And so basically the thought of Paul is just continuing into chapter 2. And so in chapter 1, we have this portrayal of this, this, this great human problem that, that uh, there is a worship of the creator rather than the creator. And then Paul in Romans chapter 2 and verse 1, in the continual thought, he writes and he says, but you who think you're okay, you're actually in the same situation. You're going through the same. You that, you that judge others, you're actually being judged yourself. Now, what Paul does here in the book of Romans in chapter 2 and also chap chapter 3 is he describes the problem of all humanity, both those that believe in God, but also or those that deny God, but also those that actually believe in God. Now, it's talking here um, about the Jews, but of course, you know, we could, yeah, it would be easy to narrow it down and just say, okay, that's about the Jews, so it doesn't talk about us. But I think that the description of the Jew in Romans chapter 2 is really a description of the believer today. Uh, I want you to take notice of, as we drop down in Romans chapter 2, drop down to verse 23 and 24. Listen to what it says. Paul writing to... The people there in Rome, both to the Jews and the Gentiles, the believers and the unbelievers, and he says in verse 23, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So there's a problem, and the problem is not just with the unbelievers that are worshiping the creator rather than the creator, the problem is also within God's church. And though you are judging the other, you're actually doing the same thing. That's what Paul is saying. He goes on and he describes in the, in, the, in the last part of the chapter, take notice of verse 28 and 29. He says, for he is not a Jew who is one, what does it say? Outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one what? Inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the latter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now, Paul is getting to something very critical here, and sometimes we can, you know, sweep away those passages and we say, well, you know, this was in the old covenant, and it's, and it's talking here about, you know, circumcision, and, and those were something that the Jews used to do, and this was a problem that they faced in the first century because the Jews still wanted to go on with, uh, with, with their patterns of religion, but this has little to do with me today. But Scripture 
is for us today. And you, we can take this passage and we can apply it to us because what's the problem here? The underlying problem that Paul is describing is that the Jews, they had an outward form of religion, but they lacked the inward change. They had the outward form, but they didn't have the heart the change of heart. And this is exactly what uh, Paul is tapping into here, and that is so relevant for you and for me. Because we can have the right outward pattern of religion. We can do the right things at the right time, and we can go to the right places, and we can, do, we can say the right things. But is there really, has God really been able to impact our hearts? Has God been able to change our lives? I titled this message this evening, A Pattern or a Person? question mark. A pattern or a person? And that's a question that each of us has to answer. In our walk, have we conformed to a pattern of religion or have we actually accepted a person into our lives and that person being Jesus Christ? This is the big question that we all need to ask. And in order for the gospel to go forth unhindered in your life, you must make sure that you have accepted a person and not merely a pattern. Now, we're going to kind of flesh this out, and we're going to try to um, understand this a little bit better here. Um, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, there's a very well-known verse. I'm sure when I read this verse that many of you will go, yes, I've heard that verse before. Maybe some of you even know it by heart. It's very simple. It says the following, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. And maybe you can even finish it if I start it. Let's see if you can do that without looking in your Bible. For all have sinned. Can anyone finish that? Yeah, perfect. Very good. So this is what Paul says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, it's interesting. In the book of Romans, which is this amazing picture of the gospel, Paul uses three chapters, the first three chapters, and we don't have time to read it all through, but you can go back and you can read it. But in three chapters, he displays the condition of humanity and the condition of believer or those that are following a religious pattern. He, he displays their condition, but he shows them how they are lacking a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. You see, the good news of the gospel is only as good as the bad news is bad. And that's why it's so important for Paul that, first of all, we understand what, what, what we are without Christ so that we actually start appreciating Christ. You know, in our world today, uh, sometimes when we do evangelism, we go to people and we say, Jesus saves. And people say, well, that's fine, but I don't need salvation. I don't need to be saved. Because they don't understand their condition without Christ. And so the message Jesus saves means very little if they don't understand first the condition they're in without Jesus. Does that make sense? And so that's why in the book of Romans, in such, a, in such an amazing way, in the first chapter, the second chapter, and the third chapter, Paul describes the condition of all humanity, not just those that are denying God altogether, but even those that are following religious patterns but have not experienced the person of Christ. And then he sums it up in chapter 3, and he says, we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That includes everyone, every single one of us sitting here tonight, every single one of us, including myself, have fallen short. And it's so important for us to understand this because the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad. Let me give you an illustration of this. I'll give you two illustrations, and I think this will help you to understand this. Imagine that you were going to a beach on a beautiful sunny day, and you were going to enjoy your time together with your family, and you're there on the beach, 
and you decide to just walk a little bit into the water and the waves are just splashing on your knees and it's a beautiful day, everything is just perfect and you're just enjoying the, the, the scene and, uh, and, and nothing, nothing's wrong, you're just, just having a great time. And suddenly there's this big strong guy and he runs up to you into the water and he pulls you out and he drags you to the beach, onto the beach and he says, I saved you. Now, what would you think about that person? Like, have you lost your mind? I, I was like, I was perfectly okay. I did not need you to pull me out of the water. As a matter of fact, I was just enjoying the water splashing against my knees. Now, let me picture another scenario here. What if on the same beautiful day you decided that you were going to go for a swim and you start swimming into the ocean and everything is fine, but then suddenly as you, want to as you turn around and you want to swim back to the beach, you sense that you're being pulled away further and further and further and the tide is just drawing you away and you realize you, you can't get back. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you exercise, you just don't manage. And so, and eventually, you see in the, in the distance, you see, this, you see a boat. And you're like, oh, that's my only chance. And so you're, you're waving, and, and you know, you're going a little bit under, but then you're, you're, you're able to come out again, and, and, and yeah, he sees you. And the, the boat is coming closer and closer and closer and closer. And you think, oh, as long as I can just manage to stay above the water for a little bit longer. And then there it is, this great big guy, he puts out his arm, and he pulls you into the boat, and he says, I saved you. Now, you're going to be thankful the rest of your life. Amen? Now, what's the difference in these two scenarios? In the first scenario, you didn't need salvation. You didn't need to be saved. In the second situation, you realized that you needed to be saved. This is exactly how it works with the gospel, my friends. In order for us to appreciate the saving work of Jesus, we must first understand that spiritually speaking, we are drowning. Without Jesus, we can't do anything. Without Jesus, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are in a very, very, very bad situation and we can't help ourselves. There's nothing in us that we can actually save ourselves. The only thing that we can do is to put our full trust in our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, I want to share another illustration that might help because, um, or before I do that, let's go to a passage here. Um, if you're still in Romans chapter 3, I want you to take notice of this graphic description that Paul gives us of humanity. Um, and we're going to start in verse 10. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. Listen to what it says. As it is written, and he's actually quoting here from the Old Testament, and he's using these verses to describe the condition of humanity, and he says the following, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is upon their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is just describing just a little bit of what humanity is like without Jesus 
Christ. Now, how do we know that this is the condition of humanity? How do we know that? Well, if you're still in Romans chapter 3, take notice what it says in verse 19. Verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, that's talking about the Ten Commandments, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become what? What does it say? Become guilty before God. In other words, how do we know that we have sinned and come short of the glory of God? Because of the law of God or the Ten Commandments. So this is like a mirror. And here we come to to another illustration that will help you to understand this. The law of God, and the Bible actually tells us even in the book of James, that the law of God is like a mirror. So if you have worked outside and, you know, whether it's been in the garden or you've been working on a car or whatever it is, and you have just really, you're just really dirty in your face and you come inside in the evening and you walk into the washroom and you look at the mirror now and the mirror reveals to you that you are dirty and that you need to, to wash your face, you can do two things. You can either decide to wash your face, that fixes the problem, or you could break the mirror and you don't see it any longer. The problem is no longer there, right? Or is the problem still there? The problem is still there. Now, now you might say, well, whoever would do that? I mean, that just makes no sense. But do you know that that's what Christianity has done? Christianity at large has looked at the law of God and said, you know, that law, that reveals something about us that not, that's not a very pretty picture. Let's just get rid of the law of God. And in getting the rid of the law of God, th- the problem has not been solved. Because what is, the, what is the, the function of the law? The function of the law, the function of the Ten Commandments is to reveal that we are sinners and that we are in need of a Savior. And so the law has a purpose to lead us to Christ so that we go to Jesus in order to be washed clean, in order to be purified. Now, with this foundation that we've laid now here in the book of Romans, I want to go to um, another passage in the book of Matthew. And so you can turn back in your Bibles to the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, and turn to chapter 5. And how many of you know what we find in Matthew 5? Anyone know what we find there? The Sermon on the Mount. That's right, the Sermon on the Mount. So um, I want to look at a couple of verses here because what happens is um, when we follow a religious pattern, we look at the law of God and we try to somehow you know, make ourselves keep the law of God so that we can basically check off those commandments. And uh, uh, sometimes you might not say it like that, but inevitably this is what happens. If we're following a religious pattern and not a person, it will be like, okay, we have the Ten Commandments. Okay, I can, I, it reveals my condition. But, you know, I'm actually doing pretty well because if I look at the Ten Commandments, you know, one of the commandments is, uh, thou shalt not murder. I've never murdered a person. So that's already, click. I can check that one off. I'm doing pretty well. And uh, then you might say, you know what? Um, it says, you know, uh, you're, not, you're not to bear a false witness. You're not supposed to lie. But, you know, yeah, sometimes I've told, you know, kind of the white lie. But I'm not a liar, right? And this is the way, the, way, the way it's easy for us to reason when we're following a religious pattern. We have the Ten Commandments like a check, 
like a checklist. Like, okay, I'm doing fine on that one. I'm doing fine on that one. Okay, I, I may lack a little bit in that one, but at least I keep the other, so that makes up for it. And this way of thinking, my friends, leads us away from the experience that the gospel wants to give us. And do you know what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5? Jesus comes along and he basically magnifies the commandments. And he's basically saying, if, if I could just put it in my own words, he's saying, you thought you were doing okay? Let me show you how you're actually doing. And look at what he says, for example, in verse 21 and 22, when it comes to the commandment regarding murder. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22. These are the words of Jesus. So if you have the words of Jesus in red in your Bible, then these words are in red. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. He's quoting the commandment. And whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. Listen to what Jesus now does as he expands this, verse 22. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So what is Jesus doing here? He's saying, okay, you thought you never murdered, but if you were angry in your heart, if you had anger towards a brother or a sister, you have already transgressed that commandment. Now, uh, drop down a couple of verses and go to verse 27 and 28. And here Jesus does it again with another commandment. Listen to what he says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, suddenly now, that checklist thing doesn't work anymore. Because what we thought we could kind of check off as we are following a pattern of religion, okay, I'm doing pretty well on this, or maybe I'm not doing so well on, on this, but at least I'm doing better than that person. And many times we compare ourselves with each other, and we think, well, we balance it out, but that suddenly doesn't work any longer, because Jesus says, you know, you're guilty. We're all guilty, because what you thought, even your, think, even your thoughts lead you into disobedience to God's law. And you might say, well, this is not a very flattering message. This is not a good message. But my friends, this is the important, an important part of the gospel because, again, when we understand that we are in need of a Savior, we are going to cling thus even more to Jesus because we know that without Him, we can't do anything. And so as we now go back to the book of Romans, I want you to take notice how in Romans chapter 3, we move now from the pattern of religion to the person, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, and I just love these verses here that we're going to read. We're going to pick it up in verse, well, let's just pick it up again in verse 19 so we get the context here. And look at how Paul now makes this transition and leads us to what really matters, the person Jesus. Listen to what he says. Romans 3, beginning in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. We've established that, that the law of God is like a mirror. We are all guilty. We have all transgressed. We have all come short. Verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. It's not possible for us to make ourselves obedient in the eyes of God. But then, verse 21, listen to what it says. 
But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Now, Paul is saying, when the righteousness of God was revealed to us in the law, we were condemned. But now, the righteousness of God is revealed to us in a person, Jesus Christ, and when we put our faith in his obedience, we are now justified in the eyes of God. And now we move from following a pattern of religion to following a person. Do you see the difference? Amen? You still with me this evening? It's not getting too complicated, I hope. So when we follow a person, this changes everything. Because now this person is the one that starts empowering us to live in obedience to God. It's not the checklist anymore. It's not, well, I'm doing quite fine on that one. I'm not doing so fine on that one, but at least I'm doing better than him or at least I'm doing better than her. And, you know, we go through these motions and it's an outward motion, and, but the, the heart and the mind is not changed. But Paul says, no, it's not about a pattern of religion. It's about a person. And when you put your faith in the person Jesus Christ that lived a perfect life, obeying all the commandments of God in his life and paying the perfect price for your sin. He took your sin upon himself. He died on the cross. When you put your faith in the perfect life and the perfect death of Jesus, now his life becomes your life. And now the life that he lived, he starts living in you. And can you live in obedience? Yes, you can, but not in your own strength, but it's now in the strength of Jesus Christ. My friends, it's so important to come back to the basics of the gospel. And because when we start understanding these things, the gospel will take on a whole, it will be a whole new experience in our lives. What, what needs to happen is that we need to let go of the pattern of religion and we need to hold to the person, the person that can empower us to live a new life. There's this beautiful quotation by Alan White that I want to share with you. It's very short, but it's just to the point. She says in the, in the book, In Heavenly Places, page 54, she says the following, we have not six patterns to follow, nor five. We have only one, and that is Jesus Christ. Isn't that powerful? We don't have six patterns to follow. We don't have five patterns to follow. We only have one pattern to follow, and that's Jesus. That makes it a whole lot less complicated so that we don't have to live our Christian lives with the checklist. We don't have to live our Christian lives uh, following these patterns of outward motions of religion, of, 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 of just the outward thing. No, the gospel goes so much further than that. It's putting our faith in a person, and that person empowers us, and that person changes our very thinking. He changes our heart. He changes our mind. He leads us into obedience, but not because there's anything in us, but because we put our confidence and trust in him. I mean, this is the gospel, my friends. And this gospel can go forth in your life unhindered when you put your confidence in him. But what many times happens is we choose rather for the pattern of religion than for the person. And in our closing minutes together, I want to just go to a passage in the Old Testament that describes what many times we go through in our lives. And I think it also will help us, this passage, to see where we can come back to that one pattern, Jesus Christ. So turn in your Bibles now to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, 
and go to chapter 2, Jeremiah chapter 2. And when you're there, you can say Maranatha. You know what that means? What does Maranatha mean? The Lord is coming, amen? Jeremiah chapter 2, take notice of what it says here. Uh, This is basically God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, and he says the following. Verse 2, go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord. Hear the Lord speaking. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in the land not sown. And then in verse 5, it says, thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me, have followed idols, and have become idolaters? You know, sometimes you think of God as kind of this, you know, robot in the sky that just, you know, commands and does things. But when you really read scripture, at times you will just be amazed with the uh, emotions that, that God has and the person that he actually is. And I think this passage just really puts God on display. God is basically saying, why did you walk away from me? What have I done wrong to you? I loved you. It's like God is almost remissing upon the times that he had with his people in the past. But now his people have rather chosen for the patterns of religion than for him as a person. And so God is saying, what what injustice have I done? I mean, why is it that once you walked with me and now you walk with me no longer? And then, basically, Jeremiah here, uh, inspired by the word of God, he pinpoints the problem in verse 13. Drop down to verse 13. Listen to what it says. For my, com- my people have committed two evils. How many? Two. Listen to these two. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and who in themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. So there are two problems. There are two problems. The first problem is they have left God because they thought that the pattern was better than the person. And then what did they do else? They, they, they actually made their own cistern to hold water. And, and this is such an amazing picture because in, in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, you have this picture that, that God is the one that satisfies our deepest longings. And, you know, if there's ever a, a longing, you know, that can be expressed, um, it is really when, when, when you're thirsty. Because when you're thirsty, it's like, you know, you just, you, just, you just need that water. And that water is like a need that everyone has. It's not like someone that can go without water for, you know, it's only a very short span of time that you can go without water. It's necessary. And God is saying, I will give you the living water. And yet here you have a people that say, you know what? We don't want you as a person. We have our own pattern. And you know what? We'll, we'll make our own cisterns that can hold water. But then it says in the passage that they are broken, that it will hold no water. And my friends, this many times pictures our experience. How many times has God given us a picture of what his will is for our lives, but we think to ourselves, I have a better way. Yeah, I know what you say, God. And that probably applies to to my friends and it probably applies to my parents. But for me, this is just an exception. I, I have a different way. I'll just follow my own pattern and I think that I'll find pleasure and fulfillment and joy in doing that. And so we make this, it, it's described here, it's like making this cistern. And, and the water that God gives, you know, we, we have something that can hold our own water. We can find our own joy. We can find our own fulfillment. 
And the Bible promises us, my friends, this is a promise. It will not hold water. And, 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 and we must come to the point in our lives that we say, you know what? I'm going to give up because my patterns are, are, are just not going to fulfill. My patterns are not going to give what I really, really need and what only God can give me. Because the living water, my friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we must come to him, and we must allow him to take away that thirst in our lives. Amen? And so may you this evening choose for the person and not the pattern. Now, when you follow the person, you will have a pattern. It's exactly what the quote says. We have not six patterns to follow, nor five. We have only one. There is a pattern, but the pattern is the person, Jesus Christ. His life is to be our example. His life is to be the very pattern that we want to make sure we match, not in our own strength, but in his strength. Because when we do that, the gospel will be able to go forth unhindered. And so I just want to make a short appeal here before we close with a word of prayer. How many of you recognize that, yes, you do fall into that temptation at times, and maybe you're even going through it right now, or maybe you have gone through it, or you know that, you, that your affections lean that way towards forming your own pattern, forming your own way in which you think you find that fulfillment in life, but you realize that you want to come back to God's way. You want to make sure that you're connecting with the source of living water. How many of you say tonight, I want to make sure that I'm with him? Amen. Amen. Why don't we pray together? Father in heaven, I'm so grateful to be here at Fountain View. I've really enjoyed my time here already. I want to thank you for all of these students that you've led here, which I believe is no coincidence. They're all hand-selected by you. You brought them here with a purpose to train them, to build their characters. And Lord, now we have this week of prayer together in which we can study your word. What a blessing. And Father, this evening, as we looked at Romans 2 and 3, we see that you desire for us not to follow a religious pattern, but to follow a person, and that is your son, Jesus. May we look at his life, may we study his life, and may the power of your spirit fill us so that his life can be lived in us. Thank you so much, Lord, that you give us living water, that we don't need to hoo out our own cisterns because you're, you have promised in your word that they will hold no water. But thank you that we can turn to you, that we can find the fullest satisfaction in you and that we can know that we are your sons and daughters and that we can cry out, Abba, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that your gospel will go forth unhindered and may it go forth unhindered in each of our lives. For we pray and ask this in your precious name. Let everyone say, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.